2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Casper. Uh, Casper has a new way to sell mattresses to you, and it is way better than the old way. The old way was going to a dealership and paying too much for a crappy mattress. The new way is you order it online, you get a great price, and it gets delivered to your house in a box. This cannot be beat. If you go to casper.com slash longform, you'll get $50 off your order, and you'll be supporting this show. Here is this show. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here, unfortunately, with only Max Linsky, as Evan continues to be a father. His absence is, uh, well, it's extended at this point. It's going to be funny when this uh, show is archived in, like, 25 years, and Evan's child is, like, a urban professional living in New York, <laughs> listening back to this period wall. Yeah, Okay. Uh, this week on the show, uh, we've got Ian Urbina. This was actually a, a, a fun show because uh, usually I, th- I have an idea to do something and then I'm like, oh, I don't have time now. And then six months later, I remember it. But I was uh, leisurely opening my New York Times. I noticed this uh, incredible series um, that he has been doing about crime on the deep seas. And an email later, he was in our studio telling us about it. It's something he's worked on for over a year, I believe. Um, It's a four-part series, which uh, I think today or tomorrow, the last part of, is coming out. Uh, They're really, really excellent. I recommend checking them out and then hearing him. I mean, this is like a a massive project. I'm sure you guys get into all the details of the story, so I don't want to spoil any of them. A thing that I did not understand before reading those stories is that there's basically like no law. Yes. It's like an anomaly in the world. So, yeah, thanks to Ian for coming in. Uh, As always, thanks to Tiny Letter for sponsoring the show. It's a simple, powerful email newsletter tool to get any old thing you want to communicate about out to an audience. Thanks, as always, to Tiny Letter, but a special thank you this week to Tiny Letter. Yeah. I don't Uh, even know why, but sure. Well, here's why. Together, son of a bitch. Can we start a campaign uh, on this show? Write in if you would like Max to change the music that plays when his cell phone goes off. It's I'm going to describe it. It's music that you would expect to be at a carousel. <laughs> Should we play it again? Yeah, play it one more time. Okay, hold on. 
I just think it's like a good. We can take a user poll here. Actually. I think it's a good old time melody. Let me know if you think this is an appropriate uh, ringtone for an adult man. It's called "By the Seaside," Aaron, and I okay. think it's just. That's where it goes. Oh, yeah. yeah. By the seaside. That's right. Yeah, it is. It's what it would be playing at like um like uh like a like a like a disgusting British resort town. I actually I, I actually think that the reason I had never thought this realized this before, I actually think that the reason that that is my ringtone yeah. is because I have this memory of walking outside the boardwalk in Atlantic City after losing like a really unfortunate amount of money in craps. <laughs> that song was playing, and I was just like, like uh, not quite drunk enough to have lost that much money. <laughs> so we were talking about why we're double quadruple thanking um, uh, Mailchimp this week. This is why. Why we are throwing a party yes. with Mailchimp. Yeah, with the. Great folks at Tiny Letter. Third anniversary of this podcast. Yes, we have done so many episodes. We've yeah. been doing this for three years, and we we figured it was time to finally celebrate. And so we're throwing this party with Tiny Letter, our longtime sponsors. And uh, here's the party. This is the idea yeah. for the party. Pitch it to me. Uh, is it's only people who have appeared on the show. Yes. Yes. So it's a small party. Yeah. You you can't come unless you have been a guest on the show. It's elitist. <laughs> It is. It is elitist. But we've decided that um, if it's going to be the celebration of the show, and that's the idea, right, it's just to sort of like take the show offline, put all these people in a room together. To, to celebrate ourselves, yes. Yeah. Because uh, we need to get celebrated. I <laughs> know. I mean, uh, it's been minutes since I was celebrated. Yeah. Uh, that we figured if we were actually going to try and represent the show, we should at least let a few listeners be there. Yeah. Uh, so here's just what, a few, though. Don't don't get too full of yourselves, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so here's what we're here, here's what I'm driving at. Um, we we would love to have some people who listen to the show at this party. The party is going to be in New York. Uh, it's in August. Here is what you should do because we have to get something out of the deal. We can't just give you something. Yeah. So you should leave a review for the show in iTunes. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Go on iTunes, leave us a review, and then send an email to podcast at longform.org. And just, I don't know, like say your Apple username. Say, yeah, say what, your, what, what name the review Find is. Find some way of proving that you I did will, it. I will be, I'll be checking. I'm going to check everyone. <laughs> I don't want anyone trying to pull, pull one past me on, <laughs> on this front. Um, yeah, set, leave a review, and uh, we'll put all the names in a hat, and we'll draw some out and invite you to this party if you're going to be in New York in August. Uh, if you're not in New York, maybe enter anyway, and you could have one of your friends go. I don't know. The possibilities are endless, but there are going to be some celebrities at this party. <laughs> it is going to be it is going to be a really fun party, and uh, much like this show, it, it straight up would not be happening without Mailchimp. Yes, uh, uh, if this show without Mailchimp, this would this um, party would be at Max's house, and we'd have to go to bed at seven p.m. because of Guy. <laughs> Guys coming to the party. Oh, yeah? You can bring them? Fuck no. They can go to bed at 6 o'clock. Uh, okay. Uh, Throw it to yourself, dude. Do yeah, it. Uh, the, for the first time ever, I'm throwing myself it. Here is me with Ian Urbina from the New York Times. <laughs> hey. Welcome. <laughs> um, you were the author of a four-part uh, New York Times series uh, that concluded, I think when this airs, it'll have just concluded that day. They were kind enough to give me a little uh, sneak peek of it um, so we could tape this in advance. But um, tell us what what the connective thread is between these four stories. So the series is called The Outlaw Ocean. Uh, and at root, it's about the lawlessness of the high seas and uh, attempts to sort of take 
the readers, most of whom I don't think have ever been out to this space, and show them kind of uh, some of the things that happen out there in the realm of labor, human rights, and environmental abuses, yeah, uh, and just sort of general illegality and mischief. And the sort of the thought originally was a simple one. It was that, you know, two-thirds of the planet is covered by water, and much of that water is ungoverned and ungovernable. And um, we rarely get to go there or... Uh, hear about the people that work there. I'm curious as how you pitch a story like this. You're like, the ocean, all of it, everything that's happening in it. <laughs> it's a funny story. I mean, um, so I'm an investigative reporter and I work on longer projects. Yeah. And uh, I sat down with my editor and normally we have a conversation about what the next big project will be in January. And on this occasion, it was December and I wasn't prepared, and she said, so what are you thinking about next? And she's someone with um, a very busy schedule, and when she asks you a question, she wants an answer then. So yeah. um, I sort of just shot from the hip. I worked on a ship for a while before joining the Times. I've always been fascinated with um, the ocean. You know, if you offered me a ticket to the moon or a ticket to the furthest spot on the sea, I'd take the latter in a second. So I just said, I think our readers would really love to go out there. And um, I certainly would like to. And I know for a fact, there are lots of really good stories. Let's start actually with you used to work on a ship. So uh, how did that come about? I don't want to overstate it because it was a very short stint. It was about three and a half months. uh, And I was in grad school um, in a doctoral program for anthropology, and I was really burnt out. And um, I wanted to do something, you know, to kind of clear my head. And uh, a friend of mine had worked on a ship, a research vessel, and one thing led to another. She put me in touch with the right people, and um, I got a job on that ship to work as sort of a resident anthropologist. The funny part of it is we barely got out on the high seas, so it wasn't much of an exposure, but we stayed on the ship um, the whole time and just the whole world that mariners live in and how oddly divorced they are from, even when they're in port, how oddly separated they are from the rest of us um, struck me as fascinating. I knew I always wanted to get back to it. So you have a background in anthropology. Mm. What what was your intention with um, the uh, anthropology doctoral? I kind of goofed around in undergrad and only started paying paying attention, (laughs) you know, uh, my senior year and realizing, wow, this is some interesting stuff going on in these classes. Yeah. So I realized I wanted to stay in school a little longer. I applied to grad school and... I went to the University of Chicago, and they had a dual program in history and anthropology, a dual doctoral program. I always knew I didn't want to be a professor. It wasn't a lifestyle that attracted me, but I did really like the notion of staying sort of in the life of the mind for a little longer and finding ways to get to exotic places. And anthropology seemed like a really fast ticket. And just quite frankly, the most interesting people I met were anthropologists, so I just started specializing in that. 
this time series, um, it's four stories, and they're all they have a loose connective tissue of like people who work on boats. So when you take a culture like people who work on boats, which is tens of thousands of probably hundreds of thousands mm. of people world worldwide, and you look at that from from the lens of anthropology, like how would you go about studying like a group of that kind? You know, it is a tribe, you know, um, and um, it um, has its norms and its language and its um, sort of jealousies. Mm -hmm. And um, I just approached it as almost a foreign country that happened to be disparate and, it, you know, almost like a, a nomadic or exiled population and one that had a really, you know, it, it has its own norms, like extremely strict hierarchies, you know, when you're on a ship, um the captain is God. And, you know, really severe discipline and pretty admirable work ethic. And what's funny, too, I'll just say is these little kind of chunks of land that are floating around the globe uh, are also super international. Almost post-national in a way. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. One thing I was struck by early on was that a fourth, I think, is statistic, statistic uh, of all mariners globally come from one tiny country, and that's the Philippines. Wow. What's the historical root behind the Philippines supplying the entire world's sailing force? It's the same one that explains why so many nurses in the U.S. are Filipino. Um, the country made a decision, I don't know what years, maybe the 70s, that its product of export was going to be people, and people targeted towards certain professions. And mm -hmm. so... Um, the Philippines have poured a lot of resources into nursing schools for the women and, um, you know, seafarer schools for the men. Oh. And so it's got a huge concentration of them. Um, and also it's a, a fairly educated, relatively compared to other relatively poor countries, its population speaks English and is better educated. And so that combination makes them perfect for work on ships. Hey, I'm going to pause things for a quick second to tell you about our sponsor, Casper. Uh, they have a better way of selling you a premium mattress that they've obsessively engineered for quality. Um, if you've been to a dealership or a showroom or whatever these mattress places are called, uh, they've probably charged you too much for a pretty crappy mattress and a crappy experience. Uh, instead, Casper has cut them entirely out of the equation, which allows them to sell you an American-made premium latex and memory foam mattress for a fraction of the price, namely about $500 for a twin size, $850 for a queen, $950 for king. The best part is you don't have to go anywhere. They send it to your house in this cool box that doesn't seem like it would fit a mattress, but it does. Once you get it, you have 100 days to sleep on it with no obligation. If you don't like it, send it back. You will have paid nothing. Uh, this is a great deal. It's a great way to invest in yourself and your good night's sleep, a place you spend one-third of your life. Your mattress should be awesome. So I want you to go to casper.com slash longform. You'll get $50 off, and you'll be supporting this show. Thank you, Casper. Again, casper.com slash longform. Here I am back with Ian Urbina. What were your entry points into this world? Where, When you were starting off and you had blurted out the ocean and crime, um, I mean, this is a very insular world that isn't really very happy about being scrutinized. What, what points did you start probing to try and get inside? We had, we being my editor and I, had a list of things we 
of targets, you know, um, topical targets. And the hardest among them was the sea slaves story mm. as a target. Our goal was to go to the South China Sea, uh, where there was and is a notoriously acute uh, forced labor problem, and try to actually get on the boats where the quote-unquote slaves are. There'd been a fair amount of good, impressive reporting um, on land, but very little, if any, I've not found it from the boats themselves. And the, and the boats in particular, there's an institution called transshipment, and it essentially means because fuel has become so expensive and because overfishing has stripped the oceans of many of its fish, to catch enough fish, you have to go much further out from shore than you did 20, 30 years ago. So that means that the sort of cost-benefit analysis has changed. And so the structure of the industry has changed whereby long-haul fishing boats can't make money if they bring their catch back to shore. So they stay out there and they just keep fishing. And a mothership comes out and takes the catch, um, brings ice, fuel, um, supplies, sometimes men, out and takes the catch back. Mm. But the fishing boat just stays out there. And those are the boats, the long-haul um, transshipment boats, the ones that stay out there, the ones that had the really, really severe cases of slavery. And we knew that, everyone knew that, but um, uh, the challenge was to try to get out on one of them. Each one of these stories has sort of what you describe as a, a poster child in it. So um, there's the worst ship, there is this uh, video of people being shot in the water um, after being thrown overboard, and then there's um, this tale of captivity. And then I guess the fourth one is about the worst fishing boat, kind of? The longest chase. The longest yeah, chase. Yeah. So in in choosing those, I mean, how many poster children did you consider for, for the series? So to go in order, the first story was the Donna Liberta, and the hope, the goal there was uh, to find... It's hard to find the worst ship. Yeah. So we wanted to find a bad ship that would serve well as a sort of poster child of perhaps a diversity of crimes that occur. Right. That actually was one of the hardest parts of the series was finding which ship to use. Yeah, it uh, seems like it's easier to find a good person than a good boat. That's right. And you know, they're inanimate things and so you're kind of especially if you haven't dug into them to figure out, well, will I be able to find any of the crew and can I find these stowaways, etc. You're just going on, you know, okay, we know that this ship engaged in three categories of crime. It tossed two stowaways overboard and put them on a raft and cut them there, left them in the middle of the ocean and it dumped oil and caused a 90-mile slick and it abandoned a bunch of crew in port. But Will it make for a good tale? We yeah. don't know. Yeah. But we liked that Donald Liberto just because the categories of misbehavior were interesting and diverse. And and some of them were like, you know, really representative of big problems right. um, that were broad. So it wasn't sort of cherry picked. Um, so the slave story was the kind of thing where much thanks to my bosses, they said, just go. Uh, we don't know what you're going to find, but just go to the region and just get on the ground and start digging around. So we didn't have any idea how we were going to frame that story. And then that took a lot of effort and a lot of time. We were out on the 
South China Sea for five weeks and jumping all over the region and getting on a lot of boats. And Lang Long emerged late in that reporting. That story actually has two poster children in some ways in that Lang Long is a single individual whose story we talk about, but there's also the boat that we got on, which is a a, a, a boat. It's a Thai-flagged Cambodian crewed vessel that um, we spent a fair amount of time on and got to see what the conditions look like. Mm-hmm. And then the other two were sort of no-brainers. The longest chase was just kind of it rode itself. You know, yeah. this was a ship that uh, was on the most wanted list by of Interpol and kind of was the most wanted Interpol vessel for illegal fishing. And lo and behold, a chase was underway from, and it went from Antarctica to Africa. And the scramble there was logistical because getting on the chaser vessel was tough. If they peeled off for too far, the culprit was going to get away. Uh, and so we had to figure out how we could catch up with them and get on board while they were en route. This brings up an interesting question for me, which is when you're, say, reporting within the United States, um, someone might say, hey, I don't want the story written about me. Uh, don't come on my property. Get off my lawn. But you can still write the story about them. You can still you know, sit outside their house and, and do all the things reporters do. When you were trying to get on, like in the case of this uh, slave ship, what, what's your pitch to be even let on a ship as a New York Times reporter? You know, it's funny because it sounds harder than it is. The convincing them, whoever they, that captain is, is less difficult the further out you get. So in that case, we hopscotched. The The first jump was the biggest challenge. Getting from the port onto the first vessel was the one that really um, took, you know, cajoling and pleading. and Because there was a lot of attention going towards Thailand about their slave problem. So in the ports, those folks were very aware of kind of Western faces, Western human rights workers, Western journalists, you know, kind of throwing bad light on them. And so when we would meet captains who were willing to take us out, not to let us on their ship, they were just boat captains that moved, they were mothership captains, nothing bad was happening, but they would take us 50 miles out and get us on another boat. They were most adamant about us not getting on board from port. So we'd have to take a small skiff out 10 miles, get on their boat, go out 50 miles. They would radio another captain. They'd talk them into putting us on their boat. They'd take us out 50 more. And so we hopscotched. And the boat that we profile, it took three jumps before we got onto that Cambodian crewed boat. When you've made that third jump and and you realize you're probably three jumps back to port, uh, is that... Are you frightened at, at a situation like that? Um, yeah, I was on that trip. I, 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 We had only one satellite phone, and if that went, we were completely cut off. We had talked with um, the, special, the consultant that the Times has for this sort of reporting, and he had said he thought this was really risky because there's no way for them to know where we are. Right. You can't kill a reporter in a lot of parts of the world, but you could throw a reporter overboard, and who would know, right? It was scary in many ways, but I don't want to overstate the threat, because the reality is the further out you got, the less the, the crew and the captains out there had any awareness of us as a threat. We were just some strange guys that oddly wanted onto their rat infested ship, and 
wanted to document the work they do, period. They couldn't care less. So long as we stayed out of their way, they were just sort of bemused. And the notion of them harming us was also a sort of non sequitur for them because there was no advantage. You know, they could keep our equipment. What are they going to do with our equipment? They yeah. could. And so, really, in retrospect, the danger on those boats was conditions, you know, getting around the sanitary conditions, the gear, the weather, you know, um, and and just not falling overboard. But the crews themselves um, didn't, they don't see themselves as doing wrong, and they don't see us as a threat. Is there a maritime press? Like, is there someone who covers this world? So Lloyd's is kind of the powerhouse in maritime coverage and span out of London. And and, um, they do Lloyd's List and they do amazing kind of consistent maritime coverage. But they're covering a whole different realm of shipping. You know, it's it's Maersk. It's the Captain Phillips ships. You know, it's the the big stuff. Um, Tankers. And they're not covering trawlers in the South China Sea that are, you know, ghost ships and aren't registered and... So no, there's no press covering the this realm of. So in some ways, they're covering the big ships that some of these smaller ships are sort of a shadow industry that supports, like these guys who are on these ships off the coast of Africa who do secure sort of gig based security and are just waiting for a ship to defend. That's someone who would maybe be employed by a Maersk kind of shipper. So think of it as two different industries one is shipping and they move stuff and ship within shipping you'll have fuel tankers moving oil or you'll have cargo ships moving Mm -hmm. grain you know bulk carriers and then you'll have container ships like the one captain phillips that's shipping and then there's um you know fishing Fishing. and it's 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 own different realm Mm. and you have the big players huge multi-million dollar longliners, tuna longliners, and, you know, big companies. Uh, none of them are as big as the mayor ships, but, and then you have a gazillion smaller trawlers, especially in these parts. In terms of coverage, I don't know of any press that covers this realm of fishing. You know, yeah. there's rec- recreational fishing and there's, you know, the publications that cover the outer limits of the fishing business, but not the fishing, you know, trawling business. In this series, there's two mysteries set up. There's um, two guys who were thrown overboard and one of whom uh, survived, uh, you were looking for, basically. And then there's this cell phone footage um, that was found in a cab in Fiji? Correct, in a taxi. In a taxi right. in Fiji uh, that shows another group of people who have been thrown overboard and then are shot in the water. Um, and in the course of the story, you find the the guy who was thrown overboard and lived, but you don't fully resolve the question of who was shooting these guys in the water. When you're pursuing a story like that and you're investigating these strands, are you like is solving the mysteries the the primary goal, or do you, when do you know that you have enough that you can publish something? Hmm. Yes, is the answer. Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you not even trying to solve these crimes? No. Yes, the hope is always to solve questions, but with a certain humility that some of the questions may be really tough to solve and right. you may just start things. It was a huge coup for us to find the stowaway. That was a major score. We knew that there were two stowaways that had been put onto a raft in the middle of the ocean and cut loose. And the raft had survived a huge storm and eventually washed up in Liberia. 
and one guy lived. That's all we knew. We didn't know his name, and we certainly didn't know where he was. So through lots of scramble and gumshoe and luck, we found one, that guy. And amazingly enough, he was in a, shant, a stowaway shanty town 20 feet from where he had originally boarded the ship. You know, in, So we come full circle. So that just finding him was a big coup. And then getting to know him, shadowing him, kind of chronicling his life and and finding out from him what it was like to live through that was another sort of stage of challenge. The shooting video was very frustrating. I became a bit obsessed with that, and I, I still cannot understand how a murder of five men for at least four men can occur on camera at the end of which those some of those involved pose for selfies and it gets on the internet and still there's been no justice there's been no real investigation that just boggles the mind and and the video is more gruesome in full form than even the one that we put on the website we moved the ball forward on it, but we certainly didn't solve it. Yeah, so I'm interested in in where did the ball start there? And you're not a um, you're not a policeman. You don't have formal training in how to solve a crime. How does a reporter investigate a crime like that? So you know the saying is reporters don't know anything; they know people who know things. If you're a good reporter, um, and so on every challenge like this, you just have to figure out who can help you and who will know what you certainly don't and will never. So with this video, it became a process of finding sources at Interpol, sources at the countries that had partially looked into the video because they were concerned that it might involve some of their citizens, either as victims or as culprits, and also just sort of naval intelligence types who by this at this point in the series, I had lucked out and had some good sources on that front, both U.S. and abroad. Um, and so the first break was um, pinning down the one of the ships at the scene. There were four tuna longliners that were at the scene of the crime, and they're caught on video. And one of them, you can make out the IMO number. It's license plate number, essentially. And once you see that, you can ID the ship. Once you do that, you can get to the the, the um, owner of the ship. And so we did all that, and we got to the CEO of the company that owns the ship and interviewed him. That was a dead I mean, he wasn't giving us much to go on. Yeah, I wasn't there. I was not right. there. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, The owner of that ship was in Taiwan, and the ship was Taiwanese, and so that added further complication. You know, FOIA and open records laws are not particularly strong in Taiwan, so getting extra information was not easy. But yeah, so you just you, you recruit help from those who might be in the know. For example, there's a tracking system called VMS, and it is a hardwired satellite system that's in certain ships on the better end mm. that some governments require ships to have and it tracks them and you can't tamper with it you can't turn it off it's like a black box kind it's of a black box yeah. and it's real time you know conveying data back to you know the fisheries management or flagging authority in that country and taiwan requires its ships to have vms which was great one of the big mysteries was where and when did this shooting happen and if we know one of the ships 
and we know that ship is Taiwanese, we know it has VMS, and we know we could get its locational information for the last two years at all points. Does it mean, if you find a ship that's Taiwanese that's hanging out with three other ships, is the gut instinct there, these are all Taiwanese ships then? It's a really good question. So, first of all, you listen to the language on the video, and there are a lot of languages, but it's mostly Chinese, uh, both Cantonese and Mandarin, Thai, some Indonesian languages. So it's a mixed crew, but the voices that seem to be close to or holding the gun uh, are uh, speaking Mandarin. So that tells you a little bit about the ships, possibly. What everyone said uh, of sources who study this stuff is that you don't rob a bank in mixed company. You don't engage in a killing that takes 10 minutes and 26 seconds um, and people are filming and you know it unless you know the other folks who are around. So most most security folks I talked to said, I bet you if you can pin down that one ship that there's a good chance the other ships are somehow associated. But we could never prove that. Did you have suspicions that you were not able to put into the article about that killing because you could not independently corroborate them the one i just said is yeah. a perfect example yeah and 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 i say that now framed as just as you say a suspicion yeah. um it's only that it's a strong suspicion it was well reported but um it didn't feel strong enough to put in writing um because you'd have to qualify it like i'm doing now and there was never an ability to jump from what what the ship was to who was on the ship so we pressed really hard, tried to bring lawmakers in, law enforcement, you know, because we had one foothold with the owner of this company and the the owner of the one known ship. And we knew that he had been approached by law enforcement and told to contact the captain of that ship that was at the scene. That ship that was at the scene was is still out to sea and was at see three months ago when we were squeezing this guy and so he the owner contacted the captain got a full report of what he saw and wrote it up hand over law enforcement if that owner of the company wanted to he could give us a full crew list of who was on the ship and those are other witnesses to the crime he could also tell us whether there was an official inspector some of these ships carry government inspectors on board at times he could tell us lots of things, but he didn't want to. And the hope is that maybe some of these things may still happen. Someone will pressure um, the government or the owner of the company to um, cough up more information. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that was one of my, my biggest reactions after reading the whole series is when you read an article, one comes to mind from the Times is the article about um, nail salons in New York City. It's, you're like, wow, this is outrageous. There is actually a legal recourse. Um, There are now laws being changed to protect workers here. When it comes to something like maritime law, is there any chance that, you know, this stuff coming out can change anything? And where would that come from? Yeah, so just to pull back for a second, I do think that one of the challenges of these type of series or these this type of journalism, when you take on targets that are really sprawling, is that it's tough to show or measure impact. I think a lot of editors and venues steer clear of them for that very reason. And I think that's too bad because it means we don't take on some of the toughest problems. Is impact something that's in your mind while you're working on the story? Like, how can I tell a story that has a maximum impact? Look, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that every journalist wants to be able to 
like nail salons, which is amazing, point to concrete metrics of accomplishment. But at the same time, I sort of felt like uh, the series, we should do it even if we can't point to that. And I thought it was going to be hard for for me to imagine what the metrics would look like. There, there's specifics, you know, that could occur, you know, there's a law, you know, lawmakers in Tanzania who are thinking about sort of figuring out a way to um, ensure that stowaways or other migrants at sea have some sort of recourse, um, like in cases like this, what happened to George Mandalwa. There's pressure in Taiwan to um, require more transparency among its fishing fleet, both in terms of reporting crime, reporting of, you know, whenever they have an engagement that requires a firing of an arm. You know, there's very little requirements in that way. But the the meta system, you know, um, of what happens on the high seas is a big, sprawling problem. And I guess the hope is that by explaining and highlighting it, in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, you get conversations going at the UN and IMO and those who've been arguing for bigger fixes have some leverage. I, I, I looked back in your archive of writing and you, um, you, you seem like you, you came to it uh, later than, than some, some people. Um, I mean, that may be inaccurate. Maybe the stuff's not online. Like, how long have you been a reporter? Uh, since oh three, oh three times, yeah. Yeah, since and so I'm curious as to how you developed these skills. Like, like the in the case of trying to find these guys murdered, this is an extremely complicated research task. Um, where did you pick up this kind of like deep, deep investigation skill set? I don't know that there's um a skill set that's distinct to investigations. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a skill set that's distinct to big projects. So I guess what I'm saying is uh, if you're going to work on something for a year and a half like this and you're going to process a lot of information, I think you have to be extremely organized and have yeah. systems that work for you for keeping track of all the information. In some ways, that's much harder than finding the information. It's keeping it organized so that something that doesn't look very promising now in six months when you realize, wait a minute, I've heard that before, you can get back to that little thing that you're trying to get back to that you recall someone mentioning six months ago. So I think that's a skill, and that's something that I'm always trying to get better at. Grad school definitely trained me to process lots of material and figure out a way to condense it down and organize it in your head or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, I think it's also just sort of the basic skills that any good reporter will have, which is, you know, an ability to size up people and to be willing to ask really dumb, seemingly dumb questions and to also be really pushy um, and to go places where that aren't very pleasant. You know, these sort of basic skills, I think, are what make the difference. I always wonder when people, that's probably the most common piece of advice that that occurs on the show. And I always wonder, like, if you're not pushy, how do you become pushy? Like, were you pushy to begin with, or have you like, are you just professionally yes, pushy? I was, my mom, you know, always called me the nudge. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a word that other people use, but it was her lovingly loving way of saying, um, you know, even as a nine-year-old, that I was yeah. kind of pushing. So I think I was somewhat destined for this kind of work. So one part of this work is the deep research, like 
staying organized, like really having your mind wrapped around a lot of facts. And then after that's all done, you have to turn this into the the poster child narrative. What's the process of taking like reams and reams and reams of research and turning it into like a catchy story like for you? You know, I'm sort of learning all this as I go and... I think I'm slowly getting better at it, but uh, I look at other people that I think do it even, you know, or much better. I had an editor a long time ago named Kevin Flynn, who's a great investigative reporter and editor at the time, still there. And he sort of described a system he had, which was he he was an old schooler and he printed everything out and kept stacks. And he would force himself to write a cover sheet every 50 pages or some metric. And the cover sheet would condense the stuff underneath and it was an exercise in reducing and then he would just read the cover sheets and then you know he would build upward and I do that sort of digitally in that when there's something interesting I have no idea how it will fit Mm -hmm. in some larger structure but in and of itself it's fascinating I write up a nugget you know and it's usually a paragraph or three paragraphs long, and it attempts to be sort of a single thought. Is that written in the style of New York Times prose when you do it? Are you trying to sort of try it out as a sample? Yeah, I mean, it's rough. It's very rough. Um, but yes, I try to... Um, because th- the one thing that I've found is in prior projects, and I think a lot of people fall into this pitfall, you want to report, 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 now stop and write. And I think that's a terrible idea because writing is something that you, at least I, can only do in spurts. Yeah. And then the there's a diminishing returns. And so it's better to do it throughout. And so every day you do a little bit of attempted polished writing, attempted polished condensation. And a lot of those nuggets just end up in Google Docs and never see the light of day. But if you do it all the while, then you end up with a 20-page document with nuggets. And you start realizing, well, wait, that little thought kind of connects to this overthought and patterns emerge and they start sort of like cells kind of coalescing into bigger things. And then the question is, well, how do you make it a narrative? You need an arc. And that's usually where your character comes in and also where your editor comes in and sort of says, okay, the architecture here shouldn't be a flat surface. It needs to be, you know, something that... And I also have something called tidbits, which is uh, when I read... Not, not, not nugs. This is the tidbits <laughs> exactly. folder. So you're seeing the OCD yeah. here. You know, yeah. there's a whole system. have good names for them, though. <laughs> but, have you ever had to explain to anyone the difference between nuggets and I tidbits? Have, yeah, yeah, I have to my... Yeah, lots of people, but... Um, you know, and that's where it's one line. It's a turn of phrase that I read somewhere where I'm like, that's beautiful. That's perfect. I'm going to find, you know, or it's a one line factoid that I'm like, I'm not sure where I'll use that, but somewhere that's going to get used. So it's just small flecks of so things. So tidbits are kind of other people's nuggets. Or things I think up. I hear yeah. in a totally different context. I'm reading the nut graph of a story about, you know, car investigation, the New Yorker, you know, yeah. by Malcolm Gladwell. And I'm yeah. like, whoa, that's a really interesting thought. It feels like it could connect to what I'm doing. Let me put it in tidbits. Um, so that's a that's a good. I, there's somewhere a student right now is like putting a opening a nuggets and a tidbits <laughs> folder. In addition to the nuggets and tidbits, is there a like idea like long term ideas, project ideas? I have a folder where when I see a really interesting piece, yeah. And a, I was actually uh, just trying to prod you to tell me what the name of that folder is. So you can <laughs> hack in. And yeah. They're not. It's, you'll be underwhelmed at what's yeah. in there. 
thank you very much for coming yeah. in, Ian. It was a pleasure. I love uh, I love when people uh, come in right when they've done a story like this because uh, you've you got it all in your mind. You, you, not all. I delayed. appreciate it. No, it's great fun. Hey, that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Ian Urbina for coming in on short notice on the trip from his home in Washington. Uh, thanks to the New York Times for helping set that up. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our editor, Jenna Weiss Berman, our intern, Molly Bain. As you may have heard at the front of this show, we're having a third anniversary party for the Long Form Podcast in August in New York. We'd love to have you there. If you want to come write a review of the show on iTunes, then send us an email to podcast at longform.org. Tell us what your screen name, handle, whatever is with Apple. We will verify that you have indeed written such a review, and then we'll throw your name in a hat and we'll pick a few out to attend this party where you will get to meet the illustrious guests from the show. Uh, we'll be back here next week. Thanks for listening. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.